Thanks for joining me again this week. Uh, we continue our study in, in the life and the ministry and the person of Jesus by delving into Isaiah, specifically the last part of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, and examine how Jesus is God's servant and our servant by becoming the sacrifice for our sins. And this is really key because it shows us that everything that Jesus did for us on the cross makes us righteous and holy and acceptable before God. And it's an encouraging passage. So God bless you. Enjoy. And once again, let's get into the Word of God. Jesus, the servant of God and the servant of man. Um, Friday I was driving home and... I'd already had this, it was funny last week, I'm like, okay, God, what, what do you have next? What, what do you want us to focus on next? And uh, just, just so you know, um, I don't have a curriculum or anything. It's a week by week, okay, Lord, what's on your heart? What do you want to tell us this week in Sunday school? So it's, we're just going as the Lord leads. And at the beginning of the week is one of those rare times I'm just like, God, what do you want to do? And he brought me to the end of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. Last week we looked at Jesus, our high priest. This week we're looking at Jesus, our servant, God's servant, our sacrifice. It's like, wow, Lord, that's brilliant. You know, and it's like, of course it is. It's him. But Friday, I was driving home, and I'm listening to the radio, listening to the news, and they were talking about the, uh, the war in Ukraine, and they played a song that was written, that was performed uh, at a destroyed, uh, the main airport in, in, uh, in Ukraine, and the name of the song struck me, and I'm listening to the lyrics, they're playing it over the radio, the name of the song is, Can One Man Save the World? And it was about President Zelensky and what was going on to bring attention to what was happening in Ukraine. And as I'm listening, I'm thinking of this and going, yes, one man can save the world. Yes, one man did save the world once for all, and his name is Jesus. When I heard the song, I'm like, People are crying out for hope. We're in a hurting world, a dying world, a lost world, a broken world. Can anybody save it? Yeah, Jesus. Not only can he, but he did. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. How he saved the world once and for all. So if you have your Bibles... Open up to Isaiah chapter 52, and we're going to begin in verse 13, and we'll take it all the way through the end of uh, chapter 53. And we're going to look at Jesus, his appearance, his physical appearance. We will delve into the service that he has given God and given us, and we'll examine the, the victory that he has and that we have in him. 
So beginning in chapter 52, verse 13, we're going to look at his appearance at the crucifixion. His appearance when he is judged, condemned, and punished for us. All right? Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. I find this interesting that before God takes us into the depths of the humiliation of the Son of God, he lays it out at the very beginning, he will be exalted. And this is his wisdom. This is the wise way to handle the condition of humanity, the sin of humanity, the fall of humanity. God in his wisdom and Jesus in his wisdom laid out the plan of redemption for us. So he gives us that heads up. Before we go down into this humiliation, he will be exalted. As many were astonished at you, speaking of Israel, okay, and understand Isaiah's reading, and this is Israel when they were in captivity and in the process of going into captivity in Babylon. And when people saw Israel, they were appalled. They're like, this was the people of God. This is the group of people that came out of Egypt with signs and wonders and power and the glory of God and the parting of the Red Sea. This is the people of God who Jericho fell before them as they cried out to the Lord. And now what's going on? They're being dragged into Babylon as slaves. And Israel, the nation of God and the land of God, is falling into disrepair. What's going on? And so God's saying here, as many as were astonished at you because of what happened to you, then he's putting what's going to happen to Jesus on this. And I want you to notice as we go through this, this hasn't happened yet, but it's in the past tense. In God's economy, it was a done deal. And we'll see how God takes it from it has been done to what will be done as well. All right, so keep that in mind because we're going to see a lot of was, is, shalls within these passages. His appearance was so marred behind, beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. This is the servant of God. This is Christ. When he stood before Pilate to be judged, Pilate handed him over to be punished. When the battalion, the Gospels tell us that he stood before the battalion, the Roman battalion there in the Praetorium. And that means there were roughly 480 Roman soldiers that were amassed around Jesus. 
And these were not just run-of-the-mill soldiers. These guarded the palace in Jerusalem, the, the place where all the Roman business was done. These were cream-of-the-crop guys, 480 of them. And the Gospels tell us that these men stripped Jesus and they put a robe on him, a scarlet robe. They mocked him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. I asked Jennifer if she knew where our thorns were. We brought some back from when we lived in Israel. Uh, they're about two to three inches long. They're brutal. And they were woven into a crown and rammed upon the head of Jesus. I don't need to tell you what that looked like and the pain that that would have caused. They slapped him. They hit him with their fists. They blindfolded him. And the reed, the rod, really, that they gave him as a mock scepter, they took out of his hand and began to beat him over and over again in the head, saying, prophesy, who hit you? And you could think back where we were looking at Psalm 22, and it talks about the dogs encircling him. And these were, it's, it's like a pack of wolves, brutalizing him, torturing him, abusing him. And then they scourged him. Jesus endured the scourging at the Roman hands. They used a cat of nine tails. One whip with nine woven strands. And woven within the strands was a lead, were lead balls, shards of metal, and shards of glass. And so every single blow of the cat of nine tails was nine blows. It was used to bring out confessions of criminals. And you can imagine a criminal who they do not want to undergo the scourging. And is there anything you want to confess as the whip goes back? Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, there is. And it was a way to really solve crimes and, un and unsolved crimes. It's like, okay, you did that, you did that, okay, we got it. And so it was a means of extracting confession. Well, the issue with this is Jesus had nothing to confess. And some people, you know, say, well, 39 lashes from the whip. That was Jewish law and it was not a cat of nine tails. Roman law was you beat the criminal until you extracted as much information as you thought you could get before you killed them. And many did not live through the scourging. So when the lashes came down, the lead balls would cause bruises on the flesh. And the subsequent blows would cause them to grow and then rupture. The shards of metal and glass 
with every blow, they would hit the back sides and front of the torso, wrapping around, and then be pulled away. This is why in Psalm 22, it says, I can see all my bones, because you are flayed open. It happened over and over again. When Jesus went to the cross, when he carried the cross, he was so weak, so broken, so marred, injured, and abused, they had to grab Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross for Jesus because he, he didn't have it. He was so weak and so abused. This is the appearance of the Son of God taking the blows of our punishment upon himself. What we're told by Isaiah is that his appearance wasn't even human-like anymore. So marred, so beaten, and abused. And it says he will sprinkle many nations. This goes back to the high priest. And we talked about how the high priest would go in before the Holy of Holies and before the mercy seat of God and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice upon the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. Jesus, by undergoing the crucifixion in this abuse, was taking his blood and sprinkling not just the Jewish nation. Okay, this is written to Israel. But it's very clear here that he's sprinkling, making atonement upon the mercy seat of God for many nations, Gentiles too. Isaiah tells us, in him the Gentiles will hope. Can one man save the world? Yes, one man did. He sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice, his own blood, upon the mercy seat for the nations. That's incredible, the wisdom of God to have his only begotten son pay the price for all humanity, for all time, for all sin. Dealt with once for all, the word of God tells us. That's wisdom. It's love. It's mercy. And then Isaiah goes on and he says, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. They're, they're going to look upon him and have nothing to say. Pilate was astounded at the silence of Christ. Don't you have anything to say? Don't you know that I have the power to give you life or death? And Jesus says, you have no power unless my father gave it to you. That shook Pilate to the core. He knew he wasn't dealing with a common criminal and I think probably a common man. And then it goes on and says... For that which has not been told they, them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. In the book of Romans, chapter 15, verses 20 and 21, you don't have to turn there. But Romans 15, 20 and 21, Paul refers to this passage in regards to his calling to go to the Gentiles. Remember, Isaiah just tells us he will sprinkle many nations, the Gentiles too. And Paul says, I am going to the ones who have not heard and they're going to hear. And they have not seen, but they will see. 
And salvation came to the world through Jesus Christ. Paul was used of God to go and be at the, be the point man, be at the forefront of taking the gospel to the world. That was Jesus' appearance when he was crucified, when he was abused and punished for us. Going on into chapter 53, we look at his appearance in general. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was in the presence of the Father for all eternity. Then he took on a body and he grew up before his heavenly Father as a little shoot in a dry land. I grew up in Arizona. A lot of brown, a lot of dry, a lot of sun-baked earth. I remember times going out into our yard and uh, maybe you've seen pictures, maybe you've actually seen it, but where the ground actually is cracked and split and coming up because it's so dry. And then every once in a while you'd see, not, not cacti, okay, and in case you're wondering, the plural of cactus is cacti, okay? All right, so there's just a little bit of uh, southwestern um, wisdom for you in case you ever go out there. But I'm not talking about the cacti. I'm talking about like a blade of grass or a weed shooting up out of cracked ground. And it's such a contrast. And in Jesus, when he came, life came to a dead world. Hope came to a hopeless world. Living water came to a dry and weary land. And he grew up tender and weak before the Father. All that glory of heaven he laid aside to come to us. And there was nothing special about him. Growing up watching movies about Jesus, flowing hair, piercing eyes, the way he walked, you know, just walk into a room, people go, ooh, kind of thing. There was nothing about him that would make anybody go, wow, look at this guy. He must be special. No, quite the contrary. You would have missed him in a crowd. You would have missed him walking right past him in the middle of the street because he was so common. This is in contrast to the first time the king of Israel was rejected. I'm referring to when the people of Israel came to Samuel and said, we want to be like the other nations. We want a king to be over us. And Samuel was grieved. And he went before the Lord and the Lord said, 
Don't be upset. Understand that they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me as king over them. They were rejecting the king, God himself, for a man. And the king that God gave them was Saul. Saul stood head and shoulders above your average Israeli, your average Jew. He was tall. He looked good. He was kingly in appearance. So when he would interact on the world stage on behalf of Israel, he looked the part. But Saul had issues. He was just a man. And Israel had problems because he did not walk with the Lord. So here we are now. We have the King of Kings, Yeshua, Jesus, God in flesh, again being rejected by the people that he calls his own. But this time, his appearance, not this time, where Saul had the appearance of a king, Jesus had appearance of just a common man. As I was reading about this passage, Alan Redpath, uh, a pastor, biblical scholar, wonderful writer, had something to say about this, which I thought was so pertinent. Because Redpath said, we have the tendency to want to make Jesus look attractive. We want to promote him. We want to have bling and flash. We are like agents for a movie star or a rock star to get him out so that people will go, hey, I want to check this out. Jesus didn't have that. Nobody looked at him and said, I want to check him out. Redpath said, the only one that can make the Lord, attractive is the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit works upon the hearts of people, they are drawn to the King of Kings. We didn't esteem him. Nobody looked at him and gave him any, any second thought from just his appearance. And here's this king. He's despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And this is going to be very important in just a moment, as we'll see. But think of this. Jesus was rejected by man so that man could be accepted by God. Because man rejected Jesus and he was crucified by those he came to save, the door was opened up for us to be accepted by God. That's an astounding love story, an incredible rescue mission. Look at how he serves us in this. Going on, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. When Jesus went to the cross, when he was being scourged, the assumption was it was because something he did. No, it's because of what we did. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The word for grief means suffering and pain. It's translated quite often as sickness. But it's physical 
suffering, sickness, pain, emotional suffering, sickness, pain, spiritual suffering, sickness, pain. And he bore it on himself. He took it upon himself. And he carried our sorrows, our sadness, our broken hearts. And the term for bear and to carry and the term for grief and sorrow is not just to bear and carry the feelings associated with, but the issues themselves that cause the pain, the suffering, and the sorrow. He took upon himself. I don't fully comprehend that. But he bore those upon himself. This is so critical because you look at the world that we live in today. All you have to do is go outside these doors of this church and just go down the street. Maybe even within the doors of this church, there are people who are suffering and in pain emotionally, physically, and spiritually. There are people who are in deep sorrow. Broken hearts, broken lives, broken dreams, broken hopes, broken families, broken lives. And the pain that people feel. Suicide. Before I became a, a police chaplain, I didn't really understand why. I just knew people were sad or, or dealing with issues or whatnot. But what I came to learn, because I have to deal with it from time to time, the after effects of it, and trying to be there for families and friends of those that have taken their lives or tried to. The majority of the reason why people attempt suicide is because they can't handle the pain anymore. They don't necessarily want to die, but they hurt so bad that in their minds, they determine that the only way they can make the pain go away is to stop living, and then it'll be gone. It's heartbreaking. I looked out this week just to see depression. Currently, the current stats on the use of antidepressants in the United States, one in six people in the United States of America is on some form of antidepressant. The, it's, uh, if you want to look at it, it's the uh, UC Berkeley Political Review, and this came out uh, just last year uh, in the midst of the pandemic. And they said that the pandemic caused an already, what they call a health crisis, to spike even worse. People are sad. They're depressed. They're worried. They're stressed. Look at what's happening in our nation. Look at the economy. Look at the pandemic. Look at all of the things that people are dealing with today. And they are depressed and sad. There's an answer for that, and it's not drugs. And I'm not saying 
you know, if somebody's got a condition and it's the real deal that drugs are bad, I'm not saying that, okay? Don't get me wrong. But ultimately, the only one who is going to heal our broken hearts, broken lives, broken everything is Jesus Christ. It's him. He is the great healer. He is the great healer. And this world desperately needs him. He came to bear our grief and carry our sorrow. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He was crucified, pierced for our transgressions. That's referring to our rebellion. Blatant disobedience and rebellion to God. He died for that. He was crushed for our sin in general. Every sin that we've committed, every type of sin, he was crushed to take the judgment upon himself for our sakes. The chastisement that he went through brings us peace. He is the prince of peace. He is the peacemaker because he took the judgment we received. We are able to have peace with God. That's the only way it could happen. He's the one who made the peace treaty between us and God by paying the penalty that we should have paid for our sin and our rebellion against God. The Prince of Peace, and by his wounds we are healed spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally. All we like sheep have gone astray, every one of us. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's humanity. And then it says, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, and I, I was trying to wrap my mind around this. I'm thinking, okay, God, what would this maybe look like? And I saw, okay, if, if Jesus was right here, well, he is right here, uh, but physically standing right here with us in this room, and the Father says to him, are you, gonna, are you willing to take all of Ernest's sin upon yourself and let me judge you for what he's done and will do? And Jesus says, yes, I will do that. And then the father says, well, okay, what about everybody in this room? And Jesus says, yeah, I'll do that. Well, what about everybody in Baraboo? Yes, I'll do that. What about everybody in the world? Yes, I'll do that. What about everybody who ever lives? And Jesus says, I will do that. He, the Father, put on Jesus the sin of every one of us. Can you imagine now why Jesus would sweat blood as he cried out to the Father? If there's any other way, please let this cup pass from me. 
how would you like to carry the judgment and wrath of God for the garbage that every human being that has ever is and ever will live and take the full blows of the wrath of God upon yourself? Oh, my word. That's incomprehensible. But God put all of that stuff from us on him. See, when, when they would go and they'd offer the sacrifice for their sins, it wasn't the kind of thing where you take, you take the lamb and you go, okay, and you drop the lamb off at the, uh, with the priest and see ya, you know, and there's our sacrifice. No. When you look at what happened, you had to take the lamb of the sacrifice into your home for seven days. One, because you needed to make sure that it was not blemished and would not get tainted during the time before the offering. But also you would become attached to it. And then when it came time for the sacrifice of the sin, when the head of the household would offer the sacrifice on behalf of the family, he had to put his own hand on the head of that sacrifice, that lamb, when it was killed. There was a connection there. And when we lay hold of Christ, we're laying hold of the sacrifice. We're identifying that he's bearing our sin upon himself. This is like intense stuff. And this is what he's done. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Think of that, that sacrificial lamb. Just little lamb just going to the place of sacrifice. Like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off, killed, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. When Jesus went to the cross. He went through five trials. He first went to the father of the high priest. So he went to Caiaphas's father, Annas, and was abused and tried illegally, according to the law. Then he was sent to Caiaphas, the high priest, and abused and tried illegally. Then he was sent to Pilate. Then he was sent to Herod. And then he was sent back to Pilate again. Five trials, no conviction. They could not bring a charge against him because he was sinless. There was no deceit. There was no sin. Pilate declared, I find nothing that this man is deserving of death. He's innocent. When Jesus went to the cross, all of this was put on us and he did not defend himself. He didn't have to defend himself. And he wasn't doing it for himself. He was doing it for us. And this was God's will. Verse 10. 
Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, pain, suffering. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And here's where the victory is coming. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So right here in this verse, we see twice. It was the will of the Lord to crush him and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Keep your finger here and go over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and I'll wait a little bit. My wife said, you go to the passage too fast. Let people uh, get there too. So <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll take a moment here. But chapter 10, verse 5, in light of what we've just read, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, and he's referring to what Jesus just said, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law, by the way. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of of Jesus Christ once for all. Because of what Jesus did, the will of God, the redemption and salvation and pardoning of all humanity prospered in Jesus' hand. And the way I pictured this was in Jesus' nail-pierced hand, when his body was torn open, Hebrews tells us, the veil was torn in two. Because his body was torn, we gain access into the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go. Jesus made it so that we could go through the tearing of his flesh, through the shedding of his blood, so that we go directly before the throne of God, not just as our God, but as our Papa. Because the Bible tells us that because of the Holy Spirit within us, we cry out, Abba, Daddy, to the Lord God Almighty. For us, it doesn't mean as much. It doesn't click as much. But when we lived in Israel, you know, you'd see kids all over the place running around, Abba, 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 Abba. You know, I want ice cream. I want this. I want that. And you hear Abba all the time. That connection, that intimacy with Daddy, that's what Jesus did for us through the tearing of his flesh, the tearing of the veil that separated us between God and us, that sin, it was rendered wide open and it was all taken care of in the blood of Christ. It prospered in his hand. We are his offspring, born again by the Holy Spirit of God. Whoever believes in him has the right to be called the child of God. 
Isn't that incredible? That's what we have because of his service and his sacrifice. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. I love that. You know, with everything that Jesus went through, he could see and he knew what the end game was. Us with him. He was satisfied in the midst of the anguish. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness. And he shall bear their iniquities. He bore our iniquities, right? He was crushed for them. Now we're being told he will bear. He did it and he's doing it. When we fail, when we sin, when we fall, he is still covering our iniquities. He is the high priest forever. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoils with the strong. That's the victor, the victory of war, the spoils of war. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered or associated with the rebels, the transgressors, those who opposed God. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession, makes right now intercession for the transgressors, the rebels. He served He was the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. He served us on the cross and he's serving us now. Can one man save the world? One man did. And one man is saving the world right now. And one man will continue to save the world. It's so easy to take something freely given to us for granted. I know I do. I, in, in reading this, I'm like, you know, I've become so accustomed to what I have because of you, Lord. It's just the norm. And I needed a good reminder of just how much it cost him. So may we not take it for granted. Number one, what was given freely to us cost him everything. And he is the only hope for this hurting world. And we're the ones. It says, who has believed our report? All around us, people are lost and hurting. And we're Christ's hand extended. He's it. Nothing else is going to help. No president, no government, no parliament, no anything. It's Christ alone. So may we... In this love that he has, and, and I'm, not, I'm not, please understand, I'm not saying we should be out there preaching more. We should be evangelizing more and stuff. You know what? When we talk about somebody, it's easier and it comes naturally because of the relationship we have. If we love somebody and in love with them, you know, we talk about them at the drop of a hat, right? We don't need a reason. 
We just want to, oh, I had a great weekend with my boyfriend or my girlfriend or my kid or my wife or my husband. Did anybody ask? No, probably not. But we just, we love that, that time and that person. And it just comes out naturally. And I think the more we reflect upon the love of God to us revealed in this, we're going to fall in love with him more and telling people about him just is going to come naturally. It's a byproduct of the relationship. And I don't, I don't know, if, if you're here today and you've never asked Jesus to be the Savior of your life, it's not going to church. It's not being religious. It's not believing in God. James tells us the demons believe and they're scared to death. It's a relationship with Jesus. And if you don't have that, if you've never said, Jesus, I'm, I'm giving you my life. You died for me and I'm, I'm living for you. I want you. I need you. Take my life. Do it today. Tell somebody. Confess it. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, grab a hold of somebody and say, I surrender to Jesus. He's my savior. I believe it. I accept it. And I love him. You know, you don't have to use those words, uh, but tell somebody, confess it. You know, tell me, you know, let people know. He loves us so much that he went to this extent. It's incredible. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. Praise God.